it's obviously a, a wonderful uh, text, and um, we're, we're going to uh, be excited to see how God um, deals with us as we go through this. But the one thing that he starts off with here is if you read, if you, when, you, when Joe read the, the first couple of verses here of Matthew 5, um, Jesus basically is stating one simple fact, that he's in the business of providing people with happiness. And at first that may sound, well, what do you mean? You know, um, but that's what Jesus is in the business of providing people with, uh, happiness. It's unfortunate that so many Christians today don't understand that. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who don't experience the reality of true happiness in their lives. Um, but Jesus is in the happiness business. He's concerned with your happiness. Um, now, it's very evident as we read through this because I think it's about nine times as Joe was reading, he mentioned the word blessed, which basically means happy. That's what it means. And you can read through there and in those first 12 verses, about nine times that word blessed or happy means the word blessed simply means happiness or happy. And you can go through there and say, happy is the poor in spirit, are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. You would, you would not be changing the text at all. That's exactly what it means. And the ultimate end there in verse 12, all these points of happiness or blessedness result in, he says, rejoicing with exceeding gladness. And so, once again, God is in the business of making our lives full of joy, full of gladness, full of happiness. And so today we just want to kind of take a little bit of a, uh, a time and just kind of in more of a teaching format than a preaching format, but lay down a foundation upon which we can build this great sermon in the coming weeks. And so we're kind of having an introduction to the sermon that Jesus preached today. But his basic goal, he says here from the very beginning, is to bring about true happiness. Now we're not talking about happiness like the world talks about, right? We know that. But true happiness is the goal, and like you know, any good preacher here, he states it from the very beginning. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon, the whole point of the sermon is that you should know real blessedness, that you should know real happiness, real joy, real gladness, genuine divine reward. And then from there, he goes on and he talks about how to make all that possible. So what kind of lifestyle is it that produces that kind of happiness? That's what he looks at. And that comes, kind of the, becomes the running theme through chapter 5, 6, and chapter 7. And so we want to get down to the basics first before we get into this fantastic sermon because we, we want to make sure that we have a good foundation upon which to stand, to understand what we're dealing with. So we're going to lay some groundwork today for the Sermon on the Mount. And um, first of all, I want us to look at, you know, I think you have an outline there, the context of what we're talking about here this morning. You always, when you read Scripture, you always have to put it within the context of what we're dealing with. Uh, there's been people over the years who've really butchered Scripture. They pull one verse out and say, see, this is what this says. Well, no, that's not what that's saying at all when you look at the context. And so a good Bible st student always looks at the context of what they're talking about. And there's different kinds of context. So this morning we want to look at the context for the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, and we want to kind of give you a, kind of paint a, 
a little bit on the canvas for you so you can kind of get your hand hold and kind of understand what we're talking about. A little bit of backdrop, a little bit of, of, of framework needs to be done before we actually jump into the message itself. But first of all, there's the biblical context. What do you mean by that? Well, what's the biblical background of this message? Where are we at in the Bible? We have to do that. We have to, we have to realize if you're reading something in the Old Testament, it might make a big difference versus you're reading something in the New Testament. You have to find your biblical kind of orientation. Where are we at in the flow of God's revelation? Where are we at in the plan of God revealing His truth when Jesus taught this wonderful message? Well, first of all, we're really at a point of dramatic change. There's been an incredible change that's happened in time, in history, in this particular point. There's been an incredible transformation. Just to show you what I mean, turn back a couple pages in your Bible to the last book, that famous Italian prophet, Malachi. And the last verse of the last chapter of the Old Testament. Okay? You can pronounce his name, Malachi. You can also pronounce it Malachi. You can also pronounce it, I think David Hawking pronounces it uh, Malachi. And that's correct too. So, you know, pick, take a pick. The Malachi one's kind of a joke though, so I wouldn't use that too often. People will laugh at you. But look at the last verse there. It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then he says this. Look at this. It's very striking. Lest I come and strike the earth with what? With a curse. How interesting. The Old Testament ends with a curse. A promise curse. And then you turn over a couple pages to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And the New Testament begins with a blessing. How blessed is the man. That's a dramatic change. The last words of the man of God in the Old Testament are a curse. The first words of the man of God, Jesus Christ, the living Christ, in the New Testament are blessed be the man. Blessed is he. Blessing and cursing. The Old Testament, you stop and you think about it, what do you think about it? You think about the law, you think about Sinai, you think about thunder and lightning and clouds and judgment and cursing, all sorts of things. The New Testament, what do you think about? You think about Zion, you think about grace, peace, blessing. That's a dramatic change, beloved. And that word blessing or blessed, makarios in the Greek, it actually is a common name among Greek people. They actually name their children Makarios for the simple reason that it means blessed. But it's an adjective that simply, basically, the simple definition is happy or blissful. That's really what it means. It means to be happy or blissful. And we're going to look at that a little further because the word basically comes from the root makar, and that root means to be happy. It's talking about real happiness. And like I said, it's not the world's sense of happiness based upon positive circumstances that surround you. And the reason we know that is because Homer and other Greek writers and, and philosophers of the day, when they were speaking of their gods, here's what they used to say about their gods. They spoke of the Greek gods as being blessed 
in themselves. And they said it was a state unaffected by the world of men who were subject to poverty, weakness, and death. So the Greeks, when they looked at their gods, they viewed them as being blessed within themselves. In other words, this kind of blessing is not a happiness based on happenstance or circumstances. It's a state of happiness. In other words, the ancient Greeks' concept of this word, makar or makarios, is the idea of a kind of happiness and a kind of blissfulness and contentedness that is unaffected by any circumstance. That's really what they were saying. And that word then has the idea of not just happy or bliss, but it has the idea of an inward happiness, an inward blissfulness. And it's neither the result of circumstance nor subject to change on the basis of circumstance. Interesting. How many times have you asked, how are you, how you doing today? And people, you know, based on their circumstances, what do they say? Oh, bad week, just bad day, bad day, everything, you know. Are they happy? Are they blessed? Well, at that point, probably not. They're not feeling it. Because they're looking for happiness by their circumstances. See, the basic New Testament meaning of blessed, it means an inner peace, an inner bliss, an inner happiness, an inner joy, an inner joy that's not produced by circumstance. And it's not even affected by circumstance. It's a state of being happy. It's a state of happiness, a state of well-being in which God desires His children to live. He really does. Sometimes we, as Christians, you know, we're walking around, our heads are down, it's like, oh man, you know, woe is me carrying the cross, and oh, you know, trials, I knew they'd be here, and they are, and oh, and that's our attitude. And then we wonder why people aren't going, huh, you, you want me to come to Jesus? I don't think so. All right? If that's what Jesus does for you, you know, I, I got some other things that'll make me happy. I'm fine where I'm at. Right? And that's what, what, the, what we give off sometimes. Well, so it's a state of happiness, but it's also, taken a step further, this word indicates a form of character here. It's a word that talks about character. In other words, it's touching man at the very base of his existence, you might say. And the reason I say that is because that word is actually used to describe God himself. Wrote some verses down there. You don't have to look them up. Psalm 68, 35 says, Blessed be God. Same word. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord God. Psalm 119, 12. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Even in 1 Timothy 1, 11, it says, The blessed God. In other words, and this is important to understand, whatever this state of happiness is, God has it. <laughs> it's true of God. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, that state of inward blessedness, the Bible says that that's true of the very God that created us. Whatever it is to be blessed, it is true of God. God is blessed. Now, since that word is used of God, and by the way, it's also used of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So not only is it used to describe God Himself, the character of God, it's also used to describe the character of Jesus Christ. So this blessedness is the character which is true to God, 
A character aspect which is true of God and of Christ. I want to take it one step further for you this morning. If whatever this blessedness is, it's true of God and it's true of Christ, now this is important, the only people, the only people who will ever experience this kind of blessedness are those who partake of God and partake of Christ. It's the only way. Apart from you partaking of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, there's no way you will ever experience this kind of blessedness. It's impossible. 2 Peter 1.4 says, We who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what it says, are partakers of what? Of the divine nature. We're partakers of the divine nature. We've been transformed from the deadness of our sins. We've been made alive in Christ. He transformed us. He made us a new creature in Christ. And as a result of that, now we're partakers of the divine nature. And you say, well, so what? Well, you know what? The point is this. is If we're partakers of the divine nature, and this kind of state of well-being is part of the character of God, is part of the character of Christ, well, guess what, beloved? That means it's part of our character too, or it should be. We're partakers of the divine nature. And we can know that same bliss, that same inner state of contentment, that same happiness way down deep in our hearts that is known by God and that is known by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful truth to realize. So this blessing, this blessedness, makarios, then is fundamentally an element of the character of God. And man will only understand and take part of that element insofar as they, they partake of the divine nature. From the very beginning, it's established the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to say and nothing to offer to someone apart from faith in Jesus Christ. They're nice words, you read them, you... If you're not in Christ, it's not, there's no connection there for you. Sorry, but that's, that's what the Scripture says. These words were written for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have trusted in Him as their Savior. We become partakers of that divine nature, and all of a sudden we have that same bliss, that same contentment, that same happiness is available to us, that same sense of blessedness is known by God Himself, by Christ Himself, and it's also something that can be known by us, His people. That's an incredible thought. Once you come to Christ, once you know God through Christ, this blessedness that Matthew 5 talks about becomes available to you. There's no other way to get it. There's no back door. There's nobody over here, you know, selling uh, discounted ways. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay? There's only one door to this kind of blessedness. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about this happiness or this kind of blessedness, it's very important to understand the biblical context, the biblical concept. It's not just talking about some superficial attitude that's based on your circumstances or something like that. It's talking about an inward attitude that's based on the very indwelling of the character of God himself. It's not something you can generate on your own. 
So we see here the Old Covenant ends with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse. The New One opens with a potential that every, very, every character, every person, if they come through Christ, can have that indwelling nature within them. And they're available to that kind of blessing. I mean, it's incredible to think that we're even partakers of the divine nature. So that we can know the same bliss, the same happiness, the same blessedness that the eternal God knows in His own mind. That's available to us as, as, just as we're here this morning. That's the kind of contentment that God wants us to have. You stop and you think of the Old Testament, it's the book, what? Of Adam. And Adam and his story throughout the Old Testament, they're, they're, it's a kind of a sad story. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you know, I mean, there's some comforting words in the Psalms and stuff, but a lot of it's kind of a sad story. Do you know that Adam was the first king on the earth? He was the first king on the earth. God said that's, that's what he made him. He had dominion over the earth. He was the first monarch. But you know what? He got greedy and he fell. <laughs> and since he fell, the Old Testament had to end with a curse. That's the result. But the New Testament, on the other hand, you know what? That, that old king is, is no longer valid. Now there's a new king. Well, who's the new king? The Lord Jesus Christ. See, and that's why Matthew starts the New Testament. I really believe that. That's why God put this book first. Because the whole purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to what? Reveal the kingship of Christ. And so when you open up the New Testament, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Well, boy, that king messed up. The New Testament opens with the blessedness of a brand new king. And it's immediately presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew. The last Adam, and then you have the second Adam, the greater than Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ. And He's the one that will not fail. He's the one that will not fall. See, the first king fell and he left a curse. The second king reigns and he leaves a blessing for us. We'll only yield our heart to him. One writer put it this way, The first Adam was tested in a beautiful garden and he failed. The last Adam was tested in a dangerous desert and he succeeded. Because the first Adam was a thief, he was cast out of paradise. But the last Adam turned to a thief on the cross. And he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The book of generations of the first Adam ends with a curse. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ ends with a promise. Revelation says there shall be no more curse. That's what we have to look forward to. So the Old Testament gives us the law to show man in his misery. The New Testament gives us life to show man in his happiness or his bliss. That's a big difference. And you have to understand that contextually. You have to say, well, why, what's Jesus saying here? What are, they, what are they thinking, these people that are hearing that? So Matthew immediately introduces us to who? He introduces us to King. The King, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new King. There's one that can reverse that terrible curse that had to end the Old Testament. And we are faced with him as soon as we open up the pages of the Gospel of Matthew. We talked about the arrival of the king. Earlier on in Matthew, we studied the adoration of the king and, and the anticipation of the king, the announcer of the king. Remember, that was John the Baptist. We've done all that. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the first great statement of the new king, of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you like Westerns, you could say there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> you know, 
And he's a new king and he's got a new message because it's going to be a new age. And so Matthew is presenting a kingdom that unfortunately doesn't really fit in the minds of the people who are about to listen to this message. As you look at the Beatitudes as this blessed message, it's given in somewhat... There's, there's some paradox there. It's hard to... You know, what do you mean blessed, happy? And you start reading through it and you're going, whoa. See, Matthew is presenting a kingdom that doesn't fit what most people would have anticipated. Happiness, as Matthew outlines it, here in the words of Jesus Christ, isn't exactly the way the world would do it. I mean, stop and think about it. It says here that happy people are poor in spirit. <laughs> happy people are mourners. Happy people are the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the reviled. And as you sit there this morning saying, you know, that just doesn't seem to go together. All those words are not something that makes me happy. <laughs> Are you sick or what? Sounds like a new name for misery. Well, there's a paradox here. And the thing we want to understand and we want to look at in the coming weeks is that all the way down, connected with happiness, listen to this, is misery. You're going to see it in the coming weeks. That misery is the key to happiness. Interesting. And we'll go into detail, but just naturally, as you're sitting there, you're probably thinking, man, this guy's off his rocker. <laughs> What's he saying? One writer said this. It's as if Jesus crept into the large dis display window in the store of life and changed all the price tags. It's all backwards. Do you understand? What do you mean misery or happiness comes out of misery? What are you saying? It's just the opposite of what the world says. The world says what? Happiness is, you know, and you can go to the bookstore and read a ton of books on this. Happiness is the guy that's a go-getter. You know, he walks over everybody to get to the top. He wants what he wants. He wants when he wants it. And he gets it. And that's it. And he's happy. That's what the world says. Happy is those that are macho. You know, you do your own thing. Happiness is grabbing all the gusto you can get in life because you only live once. Happiness is acquiring things of the world. Happiness are the rich and the happy, the noble, the famous, and the popular. You know what? That's not it. That's not what he's talking about. You don't have to look too far. I mean, just the other day I was, read, or was watching Fox News and they had a thing on uh, one of these actresses. I mean, she's only 20 years old, but she got pulled over for another DUI and she just came out of rehab. I mean, these people have more money than they know what to do with, beloved. And they're, they're, they're self-destructive people. Why? Because they're looking for happiness in a place that they're not going to find it. So you have one being carted off to jail for 45 days. You have another one just got arrested. I mean, you know, their, their, their lives are devastated. And yet, as the world, we look at that, oh, they're, they're, they're successful. They drive a nice car. They live in Hollywood. They look at the lifestyle they live, the clothes they wear. 
See, the message from this king doesn't really fit the picture that the world wants. It's no different back then in that day. It's no different at all. His message here probably devastated the worldly attitudes of the Jewish people at the time who would have read Matthew. Probably blew them away. But you know, when you stop and you think about it, any fool knows that you can't fill up a man's empty soul with, soul with external things. You just can't do it. You can't fill the rational need with an irrational object. We know that, but that's what we try to do. That's what the world tries to do. I think it was John MacArthur who said this, Jesus comes into the world to announce that the tree of happiness doesn't grow in the cursed earth. <laughs> the tree of happiness doesn't grow in the cursed earth. If you're looking for happiness, don't look here, because you're not going to find it. But so many people seek it. Think about Solomon for a second. Solomon was the most magnificent king, basically, that ever lived besides the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone should be happy according to the world standard, it should be him. I mean, from the very beginning, he had nobility. He was the royal line of David through which the Messiah would come, the most royal, noble line of the history of the world. There was nobody that was more noble than Solomon. His palace wasn't just some palace. I mean, this, this thing was incredible and it was located in the city, the city of God, Jerusalem. His wealth was so immeasurable that, that, that writings tell us that his treasure was so vast that the Old Testament said that silver was as common as rocks to this guy. Didn't matter. His pleasure was fabulous foods, incredible stables, literally thousands of the finest horses in the world were part of his estate. He had the buildings, he had the servants, he had the vineyards, the fish ponds, the gardens, he had everything. Women's by, women by the hundreds. And you stop and you say, well, what about his intelligence? Well, he's the most intelligent man who ever lived. The Bible says that. He had it all in the world's evaluation. He had it all. I mean, he should have been infinitely happier than any man. And all he had to say about life was this, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What's that mean? It means emptiness. It's empty. The New Testament puts it this way, a man's life consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. See, if you're looking for happiness, beloved, in the world's goods, you're looking in the wrong place. You're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, the tree of happiness doesn't grow in the cursed earth. It's just not here. Physical things don't touch the soul. They just never will. They never have. Physical things don't touch the soul. You cannot fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. It can't be done. But people try it all the time. You know, you're, you're really misery, kind of miserable in your marriage or whatever, so you go out and you buy a new car. You're thinking, whoa, this would make me feel good. Let's make all this misery go away. 
You got an argument, so you go out and you buy clothes, buy a suit, or you buy a dress. Again, it's going to feel better. You can't feel a spiritual need with a physical substance. We understand that. And you know what? Just for the record, you can't do the other side either. In other words, when, you, when, when you're hungry, you don't want to lecture on grace, right? You're like, give me them dinner. Give me something to eat. And when you're out in the desert and you're dying of thirst, you don't want someone to come along and talk about the merciful, gracious God. What do you want? You want some water. See, you can't fill a physical need with a spiritual substance, and it's just as ridiculous to think that you can fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. It just can't be done. Things which cannot quiet the heart in a storm cannot provide any kind of blessedness. You think about Saul when he was so distressed in the Old Testament. All the jewels of the crown couldn't do anything to comfort him. You think of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. He was carousing about, drinking, living it up at wild parties, everything. He's drinking wine from these golden vessels of the temple. Just chugging it down. Everybody's having a good time. All of a sudden, finger appears. Many, many tekel of farsons was written on the wall. And what that means is you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. All of a sudden, life stopped for him. And all of a sudden, it says his countenance changed. All this stuff that he had didn't matter anymore. That fine wine went sour in his mouth, and that food was like a rock in his stomach. Thomas Watson said this, Things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. Worldly delights are winged. They may be compared to a flock of birds in the garden that stay for a little while, but when you come near them, what do they do? They take their flight. So riches make themselves wings, and they fly away as an eagle. Proverbs 23.5 says, They are like the meteor that blazes but spends and annihilates itself. They are like a castle made of snow lying under the torrid beams of the sun. End quote. See, external things do more to discomfort the soul than to bless it. Ecclesiastes 5.13 says, Riches are kept for the hurt of their owners. <laughs> you hear that? Riches are kept for the hurt of their owners. Think about that next time you ch check out your big bank account. See, there's no satisfaction in what the world offers. And when Jesus came into the world, He said, you know what? He wasn't offering worldly stuff. That's not what He was offering. That's what they wanted, but He wasn't offering it. I mean, there are some people today passing themselves off as Christians who, you know what? They're, they're offering the world stuff. Turn your TV on. Watch some of these Christian folks. They're promising financial prosperity and money and success. All this stuff. Health, wealth. Jesus never offered any of that. That's never in the Sermon on the Mount. Ever. Matter of fact, the opposite is true. In fact, the things of the world become fuel for pride when you stop and you think about it. The things of the world become fuel for lust. And they become a snare. And Jesus said, the things of this world, the cares of this world, the riches of the world will rise up and choke out the world, the Word of God. There are thorns, and they'll do to your soul what thorns do to your shirt or your dress when you walk through a thorn patch. Tear it up. 
See, God is saying in all this marvelous, in this incomparable sermon, in the Beatitudes here, He says basically, people, you know what? You will never find happiness in this world. Never! You're not going to find it. And so why not just listen to Him and go, okay, so I guess I'll stop looking here. It's like seeking the living among the dead. When the angel said, hey, you know what? He's not here. He's risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Paul put it this way, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are what? Above. Set your affections on the things of... Set not your affections on the things of what? The earth. John put it this way, love not the world, neither what? The things of the world. The things in the world. Why? Because there's no satisfaction there. Are you saying it's wrong to have nice things? No, that's not what I'm saying. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if that's where all your happiness comes from, you're in trouble. Because sooner or later that new car is going to get scratched. Sooner or later it's going to quit. Sooner or later that new house, the window is going to be busted. Something's going to happen. Sooner or later, that's what happens here on earth. So if you're looking for your happiness and your blessedness solely in things around you, you're not going to find it because it's not there. Blessedness isn't in the cursed earth. It's in another level. And the Sermon of the Mount is going to take us to that level. It's going to take us to that level in the coming weeks. It's going to counter everything you hear from the fast-sailed pitch man. It's going to fly in that face and just, whoa, that's... It's going to be totally opposite. It's going to counter everything you see on billboards as you're driving down the freeway. Everything that you read in the magazines. It's going to give you an entirely different standard of life if you yield to heart, your heart to God's Word. Totally opposite of what the world tells you. So you're going to have to have, kind of, this is going to be tough. Hold on, and as we go through this, you're going to see where God will begin to change you. Begin to change your outlook. That's the biblical context in which we start this. Just a second, real quickly, the political context. What do you mean the political context? You know, the Jews were looking for the Messiah, right? And their definition of the Messiah was what? A political ruler, right? They were looking for somebody to kind of beat up Rome and, and, and free them, zap them all and get, get out of there, okay? Well, that's not what Jesus was about. And they had expected some really, some big deal when the Messiah arrived and they were looking for all these political changes. And they tried to make Jesus a king there in Galilee when he first began his ministry. And I think it's because his followers and the, the leaders there saw this kind of as a welfare state and all of a sudden he's feeding 20,000 people and then they showed up for breakfast, free breakfast the next morning. They looked at that and they thought politically, man, this is the best thing. No, you don't have to work anymore. This guy's just kind of food. Boom, it's there. He just makes it out of thin air. They were looking at it from a political point of view. They were looking at it to accommodate their own agenda. And the Lord passed through them and He left them because He didn't want that kind of stuff. He wasn't interested in being that kind of king. And so the Jews were looking for a political kingdom, but Jesus never offered a political kingdom. 
That's why when he looked at Pilate that day that he was going through the mockery of the trial, he said, Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, you said it, that's, that's right. And Pilate said, in effect, well, what in the world kind of kingdom are you? And Jesus said this, I'll tell you something. My kingdom is what? It's not of this world. It's not of this world. I'm not about this world. Because if it were, my disciples, and we would be fighting. You wouldn't just take us down like you did, but my kingdom's not of this world, so do whatever you want. Jesus never brought about the issue of politics. He was so concerned about changing the structure on the inside of people. He wasn't worried about politics. In his first sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount, you know what? There's no politics here at all. <laughs> There's none. There's not one reference to the social, political aspect of the kingdom made throughout this whole sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the Jews were so concerned about politics and the social life, Jesus makes no reference to that at all. The stress that he puts on is the stress on being. He says, you know what? It's about who you are. It's about being. In other words, he's not after what men do. He's after what men are. That's what God's all about. Because what they are will determine what they do. So sometimes we get all caught up in the political structure and we go right out there and we got the pickets and went through that, you know, all this stuff. And, and wait a minute. Is that really going to change anything? What a better way to change the hearts of people. Bring people to Christ. That will change society. Am I saying we shouldn't be politically active? No. You should vote. You should register to vote. You should have your say. All that. But I'm just saying within the, even the confines of the church, politics is not an issue. Because politics are not going to change the human heart. Only the gospel of Christ will. And so all these idea, ideals here that, that Jesus is sharing in the Sermon on the Mount are contrary to the human ideas about government, about the human ideas about kingdoms. You just stop and think about it. The most exalted people, the most exalted people in Christ's kingdom are going to be the lowest of the low by the world's evaluation. You know who the greatest man who ever lived was, right? You remember that? When we looked at John the Baptist, Jesus said it. Greatest man that ever lived. As far as the world was concerned, he was just a raving maniac. Running around in a modified Tarzan outfit, eating bugs. You know, they looked at that guy and thought he lost his marbles. Jesus comes along and said, this is the, the greatest man that ever lived. And you see the paradox all of a sudden. And then he went on to say, but there's one greater than he. There's one greater than John the Baptist. You know who that is? It's the least in my kingdom. That's what Jesus said. The one who's going to be the least in my kingdom is going to be greater than the greatest man who ever lived on earth. Who is that? The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, those who feel empty inside, those full of mercy, those pure in heart, those who make peace, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled, those who have all manner of evil spoken against them. I mean, you listen to that, it sounds like the biggest list of losers you ever heard of. That's by the world's standards. But by God's standards, no, you know what? They're number one. 
Because it's a different kind of kingdom. Because we serve a different king. And the political message of that day was just... It was, they couldn't even fathom that. They couldn't, that's why they basically executed him. And as far as the religious context, just lastly here, four groups, the Pharisees of the day. We've gone over this before, I think. So, But the Pharisees, they believed that happiness was found in tradition or legalism. They were a very traditional legalistic group of people. And they were hot on the past. Everything looked back to the law. Always back to the law. You know, no time for anything new. They believed that happiness came only through obeying the traditions of the fathers. Then you have the Sadducees. They believed that happiness was found only in the present, in modernism, liberalism. They were always coming up with something new, updated religion, brand of liberalism, whatever. You know, don't worry about the old stuff. Get rid of that. It's all, it's all got to be new. And you know what? Both groups there have some truth in it. The Pharisees were right. True religion has to be based on the past. But the Sadducees had a little bit of truth too because true religion also has to work in the present. And then there, there, there were the Essenes. And basically, happiness is the separation from the world. This group of people said you can never be happy unless you just separate yourself geographically from anything that's sinful. So these, these folks just basically moved out of town. There was a, a Christian ad one time in a Christian magazine of a very fundamental Christian college. And it said this, the school was located 15 miles from the nearest sin. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they're, they're kind of wishful thinking there. But the Essenes kind of believe that. If you get out of town, if you move out of Vegas, well then, you know, then, then, then you're going to be happy. You're away from the sin, whatever that may be in their mind. And then you had the last group, the Zealots, said happiness is found in the political overthrow. They said, you know what, we're not going to be happy until we basically have major revolution. Happiness is found in knocking off Rome. And so you have these four groups that make up the religious context of the Sermon on the Mount. And you see the Pharisees saying, they're, they're saying, go back. The Sadducees are saying, no, 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 go ahead. The Essenes are saying, go out, get out of here, you know, go, go live somewhere else. And the Zealots are saying, go against the system. The Pharisees were into all the nostalgia. The Sadducees were the modernists. The Essenes were the isolationists. They were always stashed up in a monastery somewhere. And the Zealots, the so-called religious social activists. I mean, what a mess. That's the religious kind of environment that Jesus is preaching this message in. But you know what? It doesn't sound too far from even today, if you stop and think about it. We've got religionists living in the past. We've got liberals trying to invent new religions for the present. We've got people who think holy living is an issue of geography. They want to just make sure they don't go near anything that's sinful. And then we've got people who think that religion is a matter of leading a parade and marching somewhere. It's the same thing. It's the same group of people. They're still here. Well, Jesus was there to confront them. And basically, he looked them in the face and he said, you know what? You're all wrong. All of you. The whole lot of you are wrong. And what he is saying is, my kingdom is inside. It's not an external kingdom. It's inside. It's not outside rituals. It's not outside philosophy. 
It's not deal with location or monastery or anything like that. It's not about being involved in activism. What Jesus is saying is that, you know what? It's inside. It's what matters is the heart. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. Unless you've got more going for you than the external stuff, Jesus says, you've got no part of my kingdom. That's what he told them. This is all you can do, this external stuff. It has nothing to do with me. I'm about a totally different kingdom, and it's, it's what matters inside. There's no source of blessing in the cursed earth. And it's true today. You know, some of us think we have the right theology. So we comfort ourselves in that. Liberals can't comfort themselves in, in that fact. So they've spun off and they create their own theology. Man can't comfort himself in the fact that he's moved away from everything and lives on top of a mountain by himself somewhere and just contemplates God. Nor can you find blessedness and happiness in just being involved in social issues. You know, it comes down to our heart. That's what it comes down to. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. 1 Samuel 16.7, the Lord laid it all out. And he says, you know what? I don't look at the outside. I look at what? I look at the heart. Are you taking care of your heart? So, well, physical heart? Sure, yeah. Go, you, know, you go in the store and you slip your arm in that little thing and hit that button and it pumps it up and you look at your blood. Oh, yeah, I do that. I eat all this good food and exercise. Do all that. I'm not talking about that heart. I mean, you should take care of that heart too. That's good. I'm talking about the heart that's in your soul. Are you guarding that heart? Because the Hebrew thinking was that the seed of all knowledge was in the, in the heart, in the mind. Stop and think, if we protected our spiritual heart as much as we protect our physical heart, I think we'd be in great physical or great spiritual shape. But sometimes we just ignore that area. See, and that's what Jesus is after. In the Williams translation in Luke 11.39, I'll close with this. Jesus says, Now you have the habit of cleaning the outside of your cups and dishes, but inside... You yourselves are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside too? Dedicate once for all your inner self and that once you will have everything else clean. See, that's the message of Jesus. That's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. What happens in here is really what matters. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time this morning as we just kind of laid down a beginning of our look into this wonderful message. Father, we pray that you would quicken our minds to understand in the coming weeks and months even as we looked into these, these three chapters of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord, it does fly in the face of everything we know to be true. It flies in the face of everything that, that the world tells us, just drives us uh, to. And, and Lord... We don't want to just go along with the crowd. We want to hear what you have to say about issues in life. And Lord, if it's opposite, then it's opposite. I pray that you would give us the strength to embrace this truth. I pray for any here who this morning who have yet to find that true blessing, that true happiness that they're looking for. They're looking 
If they're looking on the earth, they're looking in the wrong place. It can only be found in the cross. It can only be found in those who come to Christ. Because then you have that divine nature that we talked about. Then you're one with God in spirit and truth. Brothers with Christ. Lord, we, we pray that if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to You. Their heart to Yours. Save me. Save me, Lord. I need salvation. I know it comes through You. Transform my wicked heart into a heart that can bless You and be blessed by You. We thank You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.